0: This is Transmission Interrupted, the podcast series from NEETEC, the National Emerging Special Pathogens Training and Education Center. Welcome to Transmission Interrupted from NEETEC. Hello, and welcome to Transmission Interrupted. My name is Vanessa Raba, and I am an adult and pediatric infectious disease doctor at the NYU Grossman School of Medicine. For those of you not familiar with NITech, our mission is to increase the capability of the United States public health and healthcare system to safely and effectively manage individuals with suspected and confirmed special pathogens, in cooperation with the CDC, and funded by ASPR, the Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response. Here on Transmission Interrupted, we are going to bring you a series of episodes focused on child health. Starting with today's episodes, where we are going back to school, talking about securing child health and optimizing organized learning in the era of COVID 19 and the Delta variant. On today's episode, we have a very special guest, Dr. Andy Shane. Dr. Shane is the head of pediatric infectious diseases at Emory University and Children's Hospital of Atlanta, as well as a specialist in epidemiology and infection control. Welcome to the show, Andy.
1: Thank you very much, it's a pleasure to be here.
0: So let's start out with a topic that I'm sure a lot of healthcare providers and school nurses have on their minds. What to do with a child who's having a symptom that may or may not be due to COVID-19. How do we differentiate if a symptom is due to COVID-19 versus some other respiratory viral infection or even something non-infectious such as allergies?
1: That's a great question, Vanessa. I, I think it's a challenge for parents and it's a challenge for teachers and it's a challenge for physicians as well. And there probably is not one specific presentation that differentiates COVID-19 from these other respiratory viruses. And I think we've especially seen that as we've seen a surge among other respiratory viruses uh, recently throughout the United States and especially in the Southeast. The other big challenge is that COVID-19 presents differently in children of different ages. And we've also seen some children who are asymptomatic who also turn out to be infected. So the bottom line in my guidance really is to base everything on symptoms. And so really, if a child is having a fever or if a child is having symptoms of cough or respiratory symptoms, those would really be indications to be evaluated by the child's pediatrician and to not go to school. The same guidance is true for school nurses and also for parents. And I think it's really important that we really take a symptom-based approach. While it is important from an epidemiologic perspective to understand when someone has SARS-CoV-2 infection or RSV or influenza or one of those other viruses, it's also important that we not have people who are symptomatic in the school environment.
0: Right. And so if a child is having symptoms, they should stay home from school.
1: Is that the bottom line? That is the bottom line. And if there's high rates of transmission of COVID-19 in the community, that would be an indication for a child to undergo testing and be evaluated. And also for the school and the pediatrician to provide some guidance to the family about how long the child should remain out of school. In general, for non-COVID infections, we usually recommend 24 hours after symptom resolution without medication. But as you know, with COVID-19, and I'm sure we'll talk about this later, the period of isolation is longer. Just one other point I wanted to mention in terms of sort of baseline, and we deal with this a lot in Atlanta because we have a lot of allergies, is that if a child has allergies as a baseline symptom, and in the past, in the fall and spring, has a runny nose and, and a cough, and their symptoms can be controlled with allergy medication then usually one can attribute those symptoms to the allergies. But once again, parents know their children the best and know um, when there's something different or something that needs further evaluation.
0: I think that's a great point, and it's a challenge for a lot of us when children have runny noses or sore throats or coughs to help figure that out. But say the child goes and gets tested for COVID-19 and tests positive. From the school standpoint, what do they need to do in terms of quarantine and recommendations to help keep the other kids safe?
1: Yeah, so that's a great question, Vanessa. And um, the first thing is, obviously, if a child tests positive, the expectation and many schools have provided this expectation to parents, would report the positive test to the school. And then the school, in turn, would report that to the local health department, who would then assist with contact tracing. Some schools have individual teams within the school that go through the contact tracing procedure. There's hybrid situations where the school starts with the initial contact and then the health department follows up with additional contacts. The most important thing is to make sure that the individual who is positive is isolated at home for the appropriate duration and also that close contacts are informed. And that usually is a combined effort with the school and the local public health department.
0: And so I think that makes a lot of sense if you have COVID-19, but what if you come back and you test positive for something like the flu? Is that still going to be taken into account with this contact tracing and kind of official school policies for quarantine?
1: So as I mentioned, as we were talking a little bit ago, really the guidance for the COVID-19 in terms of a specific duration has been set based on CDC guidance and, and local public health recommendations. In terms of other illnesses, really the the general recommendation is that a child can return to the classroom 24 hours after the symptoms have resolved without the use of any medication to address those symptoms, for example, fever-reducing medication. I know it it does seem a little bit challenging when certainly influenza, when we have very active influenza seasons, which thankfully we haven't had at least this past year, can uh, result in severe illness in children as well. One of the the good things, and this is my opportunity to promote vaccination, is that we have vaccination for influenza and also for children over the age of 12 for COVID.
0: So we've heard that in many school districts across the country, regardless of whether somebody's received the COVID-19 vaccine, they're going to require everybody, students and staff alike, to wear a mask or a face covering the entire time that they're in the school to help prevent the spread of infection. As a pediatrician and infectious disease doctor, what are your thoughts on this type of universal masking? What are the positive aspects to it? And what are the negative impacts we might see?
1: So thanks, Vanessa. We certainly had a lot of discussion about this, both locally and nationally and even internationally. You know, purely from a public health and infectious disease perspective, we do know that masks reduce the transmission of viruses from person to person. I will also say that masks are successful when used in combination with other mitigation efforts, which we can also discuss. But we certainly have seen that children can be in school safely when their masks are being worn and face coverings are being worn properly and appropriately. And this really is something that helps us uh, prevent the transmission. One of the big challenges has been how to consider those who have been vaccinated and those who have been unvaccinated. With the recent surge and the predominance of the Delta variant and breakthrough infections that we've seen, albeit mild, in people who have been vaccinated, really the general consensus at this point is that both people who are vaccinated and unvaccinated should continue to wear masks indoors. I think as adults, we uh, have some concerns about that, and obviously everything we do is a risk and a benefit, but it's been amazing to see how well children have actually worn masks and i think in a lot of situations actually better than adults and children are very compliant they respond well to peer pressure so if everybody in the environment is wearing a mask including teachers and people who they respect then they're much more likely to continue to wear the mask and even among older children and adolescents who uh, They have their own opinions. Understanding the reason and the rationale for wearing masks and seeing that their friends are doing it as well is really something that helps to reinforce wearing masks. Certainly in situations where we have children who may not be able to wear a mask for either a medical reason or a behavioral developmental reason, local accommodations do need to be made to ensure that there is an opportunity for those children to be in the classroom but also making sure that they themselves will be safe and the teachers and staff around them will be safe. We have certainly discussed in, in the elementary school about situations where teachers would remove their mask and hopefully those would be vaccinated teachers and wear a face shield in special lessons such as phonics or reading, where it might be important for children to be able to see the movement of a teacher's mouth. In addition, there may be certainly situations for hearing impaired children who lip read where being able to actually see the teacher's mouth movements would be important for their learning. And so those local accommodations can and have been made in in certain situations.
0: I think that's a great point. And especially in those situations where being able to see the lips might be really important for kids to learn, What are your thoughts on other types of strategies, like regular surveillance testing, taking temperatures, or doing symptom-based screening to help prevent COVID-19?
1: You know, I think that there's also been a lot of discussion about all of those three things. I think just the one thing that is most important in addition to masking, and I just wanted to mention that as well, was hand hygiene. And sometimes I think we forget about that a little bit. And really optimizing hand hygiene is important, and especially when one is Putting on and taking off one's mask and making sure that mask wearing is not just having the mask on someone's face, but rather it's also making sure that they place it appropriately when it's not on their face, that they uh, apply hand hygiene or wash their hands before and after touching the mask and before and after touching their face. So, really making the mask wearing process a process, not just the single act of having a a mask on a face. Obviously, Temperature taking and symptom screening, those are mitigation efforts and and surveillance testing that can help, and each has varying efficacy in different situations. I think it's really important that we try to make sure that people divulge symptoms and that when those symptoms are divulged and expressed, that there's a opportunity for them to either take leave without having impairment or that being a negative thing, so that the opportunity to not be in the environment when one may be potentially infectious is not something that is detrimental to the individual. And in terms of temperature screening, I think we've seen a lot of situations where children actually have not mounted a, a, a fever or an elevated temperature at the time that they may be infectious. So it may help in certain situations and may provide some reassurance. But really, if I had to choose, I would really focus efforts on masking, hand hygiene, and physical distancing.
0: So if we gave you an unlimited budget to help prevent COVID-19 in schools, how would you spend
1: it? That's a great question. Um, How much do I have? Unlimited budget. Okay. Well, I'm going to take you up on that. You know, I think that really um, masking, hand hygiene, and physical distancing are really the, the three things that are really important. And then, of course, I have to say vaccination, because that's the foundation of everything that we do. We have clearly seen in the months in which we've had vaccination, that although there are breakthrough infections, children and adults who have been vaccinated are not being hospitalized. And unfortunately, those individuals who are, have opted or who've been unable be vaccinated have resulted in having more severe infections. So I would say that I would start with vaccination and programs really to optimize vaccination, vaccinating in schools, both for COVID and influenza together, and really supporting those programs, supporting education so that those who are eligible can take advantage of that. We know that access is a huge barrier to vaccination and there are some challenges with mass COVID vaccination clinics, but certainly I would start, I would devote the majority of the money to to vaccination um, of those individuals. Second is masking, making sure that both teachers and students have appropriate masks that are easy to wear and also provide appropriate protection, and that they have several masks per child and per student. And also instructing families on how to wash masks at home if they're reusable, providing them with detergent. I think, you know, there's things that go around masking as well that is important. Hand hygiene cannot emphasize that enough. Everyone should have multiple little bottles of hand hygiene, uh, of of hand sanitizer that they should use consistently. Well, also uh, making sure that we teach people how to wash their hands and how to use hand sanitizer. Oftentimes we in the healthcare profession, it's just part of our natural behavior, but individuals who are in the public may not have that much experience with that. So really emphasizing education about hand hygiene. And then physical environment. So as much as we can have classrooms in which people can be physically spaced, but also learning is not impacted, is really important. Improving ventilation in schools is something that has been shown to be very effective both for SARS-CoV-2 and other respiratory viruses. And then finally, making sure that, as I mentioned, anybody who needs to be out of the school environment is either a student or as a teacher or staff member, that the appropriate accommodations are made so that it's not detrimental on either the learning or the job role of those individuals.
0: So it sounds like we need masks to be the trendy new accessory for this school year.
1: Did I spend the whole budget yet or do I have more?
0: Well, that's my next question is the, the reality check of it, that we know a lot of schools actually have very limited budgets and this needs to stretch to covering student nurses as well as that COVID-19 prevention strategies. So if you had to rank them in terms of what's the most important for the safety of the school with a limited budget, how would you
1: spend that? So, you mentioned school nurses, Vanessa, which I think is really important. And I think that we cannot overemphasize the importance of school nurses. And so, supporting a school nursing program, both for helping with COVID 19 management and also other infections that have occurred and will continue to occur in the school environment. So, supporting the nurse program. Second, I would say vaccination and really supporting on site or mobile vaccination clinics, targeting those individuals who may not have access. Then third is masking. Probably I'd have a hard time choosing between vaccination and masking. And right now, actually, children under the age of 12 are ineligible for vaccination. So I would, in those situations, put masking a little bit ahead of of vaccination. And hand hygiene is right there with it, too. So I'm having a problem prioritizing. But I would say that, you know, what we can do on the individual level is, uh, is probably where I would devote most of the resources. Physical environment and infrastructure is very helpful, but obviously those oftentimes are capital expenses and require quite a lot of an investment.
0: Wonderful. It sounds like we have vaccines for those who are 12 and older. They should go out and get them, and hopefully we will have those for younger children here soon. Thank you, Dr. Shane, for joining us today to discuss going back to school, securing child health, and optimizing organized learning in the era of COVID-19. For those of you listening at home, thank you for tuning in to this special back-to-school episode. We hope you'll join us for future episodes on a wide range of topics, from healthcare worker safety to personal protective equipment, and even more about infectious diseases of all kinds in both adults and children. If you have any questions for us or ideas for future shows, please feel free to contact us at info@netec.org. That's n-e-t-e-c.org. Or you can find us on the web at neatek.org slash podcast, where you can subscribe to future episodes and find additional resources on today's topics. We'll see you next time on Transmission Interrupted. You've been listening to Transmission Interrupted, the podcast series from Neetek, the National Emerging Special Pathogens Training and Education Center. Learn more at neatek.org.